Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Franklin's Lost Expedition. Bit of naval history for everyone today. You love to hear it. Especially, you love to hear it when it is naval history that also involves a bit of doom, a bit of mystery. Very spooky one here. Um, in 1845, right, a British expedition, it departed to explore the Northwest Passage in the Canadian Arctic, led by Sir John Franklin. The expedition was lost. That's why I mean it was obviously I mean obviously that was you, you knew that was coming. It was it's called Franklin's Lost Expedition. So I mean yeah, you probably figured out that it was lost. Um but yes, after passing Greenland, lost, it uh, it disappeared very mysteriously never to return. And in the years after the disappearance of the voyage, there were numerous search parties that were organized and uh, and sent off to search far and wide uh, to find evidence of what had happened and you know to piece together the mystery. But the, uh, the story has had very significant developments all the way through to modern times, actually, uh, with huge new, new discoveries about the Doom Voyage piling up even, even in the last couple of years, actually. Uh, this was a topic suggestion from alert listener Melissa Edwards. She suggested that I get across this topic. And I'll tell you what, it's an absolute ripper from go to woe. So let's get to go and there, from there make our way to woe and, and talk about Franklin's Lost Expedition, what it was, why it set off, why it set off and, of course, what actually ended up happening to it. So let's get to it here. We're going all the way back, all the way back now to, as I say, 1845, as I mentioned, the year that this expedition set off uh, to explore the Northwest Passage. Now, for those who aren't familiar with far North American geography, the Northwest Passage is, uh, as we know today, a sea passage that connects the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans, going up over the top of Canada and the US state of Alaska uh, through uh, Canada's Arctic archipelago. Now, we know that today, but of course, Years and years ago, centuries ago, this wasn't, this hadn't yet been proven. They didn't know for sh- for certain that there was this passage, although it was obviously pretty widely believed that there was a way to get uh, across uh, from from the Atlantic to the Pacific one way. And I mean, look, you know, we've already talked about how Europeans were as keen as must find ways to you know sail west to Asia uh, with blokes like Magellan, uh, you know, searching out a passage to the to the south centuries beforehand. You can see episode 106 for details there. But now, in the mid-19th century, South American coastlines are pretty well mapped out. Uh, so as a result, more and more attention has actually been turned to North America to see if there's a passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific, see if that is possible uh, up further north as well. Now, before 1845, many voyages had been made in the centuries preceding this, uh, you know, our tale today. Uh, throughout the 16th and 17th centuries, there were pl- plenty of exploration done uh, of the Canadian coastlines, particularly in the late 17th century onwards by the Hudson's Bay Company. But by the time we move into the 19th century, all of this exploration, it's determined something very important. There is no passage between the oceans at a temperate latitude, right? So you have to go up a long, long way north, right, for uh, even just to continue to search for this passage. By the, in all the temperate latitudes, there is definitely no passage, no sea passage here. So this means that all the expeditions that are searching for this passage, they're beginning to go further and further north with more coastline mapped out as the Arctic archipelago was, was obviously further explored. 
And one of the blokes off on these expeditions was none other than, of course, Sir John Franklin, uh, both both on land and at sea. He had been exploring as an officer and later as a commander. He'd been off on these expeditions uh, around about, right, uh, again, searching for, well, not just searching for the passage, but also just, you know, surveying, mapping stuff out and, uh, and generally, you know, just doing, the, doing a bit of uh, good old exploring up in the, uh, up in the far north there. But in 1845, the British, they've decided enough is enough, and they're going to find this bloody passage come hell or high water. So they mark out the area that they want explored. They put together this expedition, and they send it off determined to find this passage between the Atlantic and the Pacific. But of course, the uh, the, the setup of this expedition and how it was uh, Sir John Franklin that ended up in charge of it is also very interesting. So we're going to retrace our steps here a little bit uh, and, uh, and actually talk about how the expedition was put together. It was put together by a bloke whose name was Sir John Barrow. Um, now, Barrow had been the second secretary of the Admiralty in Britain for over 40 years, and he was convinced that one final push would get the results that the British so strongly craved as he put together this expedition. He firmly believed that, then, and you know, rightly so ultimately, he firmly believed that there was a passage to be found, but further, he believed that there was there were there were ice-free waters to the north of the Canadian landmass that would enable free sea passage, and so he set about making preparations for this expedition, trying to find this uh, this ice-free passage through the uh, through the northwest passage there through the you know through this area. Um, organising officers, a crew, provisions, all sorts of stuff. He got two ships together, good, tough, strong ships they were. Uh, one was named Erebus and the other was named Terra. And uh, they had some cutting-edge technology on them. Let me tell you about this. Uh, they had some cutting-edge technological innovations. The fronts of the ship... Excuse me. Once again, all the, all the bloody nautical nerds are going to be jumping down my throat here. The bowels of the ship... The ships are the bowels of the ships, right? All the bloody nautical nerds halfway to the bloody contact form on half a, half our to tell me how wrong I was there. Um, the bowels were heavily reinforced with iron uh, to help them break through the sea ice. And the ships also had, believe it or not, they had internal heating systems. And considering they'd be heading into the, you know, the frigid Arctic for who knows how long, this would be a very welcome addition. But the biggest and the most exciting innovation on these ships was that they both had great big bloody steam engines on them. Steam engines that had literally been taken off of railway trains and turned into ship's engines instead. These engines powered screw propellers on the ships, uh, which would help to drive them forward, even without wind in their sails, which, you know, doesn't sound all exciting, doesn't sound that exciting these days. But back in 1845, this is really something, really something to be able to uh, to power a ship with uh, with steam rather than just with uh, with the sails there. So big innovation and certainly going to be a big help for the, for the crews as they head, uh, they head into the Northwest Passage here. Uh, these ships, they were loaded with three years' worth of food, three-year supply of food. Much of it was canned, and it was a bloody close thing as well to get this canned food together, I can tell you this. The order for the canned food, it was placed just seven weeks before the ship set sail. So the company that had been um, uh, contracted to provide it had to scramble to get the 8,000 cans ready in time, but they did, and they were loaded up and ready to go. So no worries there. You've got your ships, you've got your fancy, mo- fancy you know, modern heating systems, steam engines. Uh, now you just need a crew and you need someone to be in charge of it and this was the problem for old mate barrow he had a lot of trouble finding someone to head up this expedition his first choice right the first bloke that he tapped on the shoulder and asked if he wanted to go on and lead this expedition into the uh, into the northwest passage here was william edward parry now parry held the record uh, at the time for having explored the furthest to the furthest north, north point than anyone else right this bloke had been further north than anyone else on earth or, or you know he and his crew at least had 
um, after an 1827 expedition to reach the North Pole. He didn't make the North Pole, but he did get very bloody close. He got all the way up to, I think, the 82nd parallel, the 81st, 82nd parallel. So a very, very, he got, a, he got a long way north, and he was the record holder for having taken the uh, taken an expedition as you know, further north than anyone else had. So it was, a, it was a good choice. However, he'd had enough of the Arctic, and I don't bloody blame him. Too bloody cold up there for anyone, I reckon. So he said no. He said he didn't want to do it. Barrow's second choice was a bloke whose name was James Clark Ross. And this bloke had a lot of experience with polar exploration. He'd been uh, he'd been cutting about both the Arctic and the Antarctic. You may have heard of the Ross Ice Shelf. That's named after this fellow who discovered it while sailing the Erebus and the Terror, the same ships that were going to go th- uh, off on this expedition here as well. But Ross also said no, uh, you know, despite his wealth of experience, despite the fact that you might, you know, you might have thought he was, he'd be a very good pick for something like this. He also said no because, get this, he had promised his wife that he wouldn't go off on another polar exploration mission. So he's out as well. So we go down now to Barrow's third choice, whose name was, this was a fellow named James Fitzjames. Uh, But he was knocked back by the Admiralty. He was going to do it, but he was knocked back by the Admiralty who thought he was too young, so he didn't get the gig. Fourth in the line, fourth in queue, was a fellow named George Back, who, rather than being deemed too young, was deemed too argumentative for command. Uh, I can only imagine, you know, when George heard, when he found out this was why he'd been knocked back, you know, people saying, oh, you know, you're too argumentative. I can only imagine his response would have been, no, I'm not. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, fifth, I, I, I thought that joke was great. I really did. I mean, I wrote that one and I'm like, I'm going to enjoy I don't know if anyone else could enjoy that one, but I thought it's a ripper, so it's staying in. Anyway, um, fifth was a, a fellow whose name was Francis Crozier. Um, but, you know, I mean, we've had these other fellows who have had stuff wrong with them. You know, one of them was married and one of them was too young and one was too argumentative. All of these flaws in these, uh, you know, in these explorers. But this bloke had something much, much worse preventing him from uh, commanding a British expedition. So much. Like, unbelievable. Never mind being argumentative. Never mind being too young. Never mind, not mind being married, mate. This guy was Irish. Ugh. Oh, can you imagine an Irishman leading a proud voyage of mighty British ships into the unknown? Perish at the thought. Um, yeah, no, seriously, Francis Crozier was denied the chance to lead this expedition because he was Irish. So nice one there, Britain. Anyway, Barrow, as a result, with great reluctance, it has to be said as well, he turned to his sixth choice, Imagine being picked sixth after an Irishman. Oh, unbelievable. Anyway, this na- uh, this fellow, of course, his name was Sir John Franklin, the fellow who obviously got the gig. Now, Franklin did have plenty of experience in the Arctic, as I mentioned. He'd been on previous expeditions before this one, even commanding some of them. And he'd also been the Lieutenant Governor of the Australian colony of Van Diemen's Land. So modern-day Tasmania, of course. And so he, this, I mean, obviously, I would have thought that this would work in his favour because he has a, a fair bit of experience, obviously, when it comes to surviving grim accursed hellscapes by both exploring the you know the frozen north of of canada and living in tasmania for a while so you'd think that he would have been a, a good choice but uh, he wasn't particularly popular he'd uh, been the victim of some uh, some political chicanery while in uh, you know uh, in van diemen's land and his reputation was more or less in tatters he's also quite old like he's in his, he's in his late 50s at this point um so he is a reluctant choice for Barrow, but as you know, the first five have all been knocked back. He's uh, like it or not, he's he, Barrow is more or less forced to give command of the entire expedition over to Franklin. While um, the two of the blokes, the young Fitz James, he was made his deputy aboard the Erebus, and the uh, the unforgivably Irish Crozier was given the command of the Terror. So now 
The ships are provisioned, the crew is organised, the officers are appointed, 134 people altogether, and everything is now in readiness for the voyage to depart in May 1845. And so, on the morning of the 19th of May, these two ships, the Terror and the Erebus, they set off from Greenhithe, which is on the Thames, east of London, and they sail north, accompanied by supply ships, and the voyage has begun. After a brief stop in the uh, in the Orkney Islands in Scotland, the expedition uh, headed westward towards Greenland and arrived there about a month later. Been smooth sailing for, no, so far, no worries at all. They stopped there at the Whalefish Islands, just off the west coast of Greenland, where they took on the final supplies from the ships that had been accompanying them, and the crew lo- uh, wrote their last letters home to return with the supply ships that would be heading back to Britain, um, uh, which is, yes, what they just did. The supply ships turned around, headed home. Uh, five of the crew who had been meant to continue were discharged and sent home with the supply ships, uh, bringing the the total crew of the expedition now down to 129. Uh, And the Erebus and the Terror with their uh, 129 crew, they set off uh, towards the Northwest Passage. And in July 1845, the expedition uh, they, the expedition ran into well they didn't not literally they didn't run they didn't they figuratively ran into not not literally ran into a pair of whaling ships in Baffin Bay, and this would be the very last time that the Erebus and the Terror were seen after sailing off westwards uh, into the distance towards their doom. That is it. That's the end of the story. They were never to return, never to be seen by their countrymen again. I mean. I mean, yeah, it's it's called the lost lost expedition for a reason. I I I, I don't know what you're expecting. The, the the whalers saw them sail off, and then that was it, gone, no more. Hope you like the episode. That's that's Franklin's lost. No, of course, there's more. I mean, obviously, there was a follow up. They're just like, oh, okay, well, you know, like it's not as if the the British Admiralty would be like, oh. Wait, oh, I'm, what, happened, what happened to Franklin expedition? Ah, oh, it's I'm, nothing to worry about. I'm sure I'm sure it's all fine. I'm sure you know, no dramas, mate. After two years. Right, so July. Remember, July eighteen forty-five. The last time the ships are seen. Two years later, still nothing had been heard from from Franklin or from anyone else on the voyage. They'd not reached the Pacific, and nor had they turned back and come back home. And so, in eighteen forty-seven, two years later, Franklin's wife Jane she starts to ask some questions of the Admiralty. She inquires, you know, as to whether they were going to get their asses into gear and find her husband and the rest of the expedition. Please and thank you. Now, I mean. You know how I said that it's not like the Admiralty would be like, oh, no worries, it'll be fine. Turns out that's exactly actually what they were like. Turns out that's exactly what they were like because when Lady Franklin um, went to them and, you know, said, hey, can you please do something about the fact that we haven't heard anything from my husband after two years? Uh, they were just basically, they just basically told her just, it's, it's, it's all good. They've got three years worth of food, so we don't have to worry for at least three years. It's going to be, oh, should we apples, mate? Don't even worry about it. So Lady Franklin actually had to stir up, stir up a fair bit of public fervour uh, to get the Admiralty to you know, sit up and do anything at all. Uh, she got parliamentarians and newspapers on side until eventually in 1848, almost a full three years after the expedition had set out, uh, the Admiralty finally began to organise search parties to determine the fate of Franklin's expedition. They sent off two more, two further expeditions to find Franklin and his ships, uh, one from the Atlantic side and one from the Pacific, as well as a group that travelled overland into the Canadian Arctic. And despite these search parties and despite the £20,000 reward, which is £2 million in today's money, nothing was found. Nothing was found. These searchers, you know, they, they, they cruised around in earnest trying to find Franklin or, a, or a, you know, a, a clue as to what had happened to this, uh, this doomed expedition here. But they found nothing. Despite the reward, 
there was there was just nothing came up at all. The Franklin expedition remained well and truly lost. And after this, public interest in the disappearance only grew as this as this uh, you know the, the mystery was uh, was so uh, so mesmerizing, so fascinating for people. More and more people became interested in it after these failed attempts to discover the fate of the Franklin expedition. So as a result, with so many people interested to find out what happened, countless other expeditions were sent off in its wake, right? All attempting to figure out what had happened to Franklin and uh, and his crew, and if possible, of course, rescue any survivors. So as we get to 1850 now, five years after the Franklin expedition first set off, right? Five years afterwards in 1850, no fewer than 13 ships have all scoured the Canadian Arctic. They're searching for any sign of the lost ships and their crew. These British ships, American ships, they're, uh, they're, they're cruising through these waters looking for anything, right? Anything at all that would give an indication as to, uh, as to what happened. And if you're not familiar with what the, uh, what the, the Canadian Arctic looks like, it is a, uh, it's basically, it's full of islands. It's an archipelago. This is the, you know, the sort of the top, uh, the, the, north, the northeastern side of Canada on a map. You can go and look at it near, near Greenland. And there are all these sort of inlets and islands and, uh, and passages and passageways and that sort of thing. So there's lots of, lots of places to search. And there are these ships going up and down around about trying to find uh, Franklin and, and his expedition. And it was in 1850 that finally, after five years, finally some sign of, the, of Franklin's lost ex- expedition was found on Beachy Island, a tiny, tiny island off the southwest coast of the much larger Devon Island. The remains of a winter camp were found along with three graves. So here, finally, was some of the evidence of the fate of the Franklin expedition, although it wasn't much and it didn't shed a huge amount of light on what had happened. The remains of the camps didn't, it didn't contain any messages or plans. Details were very thin on the ground. And of course, only three graves having been dug without a sign, any, a sign of any other corpses or, or remains or anything else like that. There's still 126 people unca- un, un, unaccounted for. So uh, as I say, details, very thin on the ground, but still it was a start. And the ships continued to scour the waters uh, amongst the uh, Arctic archipelago throughout 1850 into 1851, still searching for the ships and their crew, a full six years now after they'd gone missing. In 1853, so now eight years after Franklin was last seen, the British Admiralty organised another official expedition. So, you know, all of these other, the smaller expeditions are going, they're unofficial. They're, they haven't, they're not government sanctioned. They're just, you know, private vessels going around searching. But in 1853, the British Admiralty, as I say, it put together another voyage here. Five ships this time were given over to the command of a bloke named Edward Belcher, who went off once again on another official uh, another official voyage to try to find the, 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 the lost expedition. Now, Belcher, unfortunately, stuffed it all up beyond belief. He was horrifically unpopular as a captain. He had no bloody idea what he was doing when it came to sailing through ice. He was so bad, in fact that four of the five ships under his command had to be abandoned in pack ice, and when he returned, he was court-martialed, although he was never convicted. So he did a very, very bad job, but the reason that I bring him up, the reason I talk about the Belcher expedition is because of one of the ships that went on it may be of particular interest, uh, to, uh, especially to some of the American listeners here, the HMS Resolute. Now, the Resolute was one of the ships that was abandoned in the pack ice, but it was later discovered by an American whaling ship, and it was brought back safely to Britain in 1856. And uh, a few decades later, in 1879, it was ultimately decommissioned and uh, broken apart for timber. And some of that timber was fashioned into three different desks, 
And one of those desks was presented to US President Rutherford B. Hayes in 1880 by Queen Victoria. And that desk today sits in the Oval Office of the White House. So uh, it is a uh, it's a it's a it's an interesting thread that has led to one of the one of the world's most famous and iconic desks, uh, and how that is connected to uh, to Franklin's lost expedition. The fact that that ship was sent off to search for Franklin, lost in the ice, ultimately returned, broken up, made into a desk, and now it's uh, you know a, a, an iconic piece of, uh, of of American furniture that you'll see on the front page of the newspaper or whatever else. Anyway. As these seagoing searches uh, ultimately turned up very little, whether it was Belcher's expedition or any number of the private ones that had been sent off beforehand, um, and with, with no other evidence emerging as to what have might have been the final fate of the expedition, uh, by the time we get to 1854, almost nine years after uh, uh, Franklin had set off, on the 31st of March, the British Admiralty, they officially declared the crew deceased in service. And, you know, it had been a long time and there'd been hardly any sign apart from that small... Uh, the, the small uh, remains of the camp and, and, and the grave sites that were found, uh, found on Beachy Island there, very little had been found other than that. And so uh, as a result, the Admiralty, they closed the case on it. But that is not the end of the story. Of course not. There are still plenty of discoveries to be made and plenty of mysteries to unravel. And the next part of the story, it begins around the same time that the Admiralty actually gave up on ever finding the Franklin Expedition. Because there was a bloke whose name was Dr. John Ray. And Ray, he ran into some Inuit people who told him a very strange, a very, very strange tale indeed. Ray, he's off exploring for the Hudson's Bay Company, um, and he's got good rapport. He had a lot of respect. He had a, had a um, an unusual for the time amount of respect for the indigenous population of the of the areas that he was he's cutting about in. Right, he had a good he had a good relationship with them. And one time, when he's kicking about with uh, with, with uh, some of these Inuit people, right, they tell him this very strange tale, very strange tale indeed. They tell him this tale of a group of 30 or 40 white men who had perished of starvation near where the back river meets the sea. And what's more, they were able to back up this story. They were able to confirm this tale with a number of artefacts that had been taken from the site. Silver cutlery, forks and spoons, you know, badges, buttons, that sort of thing. Other small trinkets that had been aboard the Erebus and the Terror. Now, Dr. Ray, as I say, who was known at the time for his, uh, for his uh, uncommon respect for, uh, for the indigenous populations, the, the, the respect that he paid the native people was very was, was unlike a lot of other people at the time, as I'm sure you'd be aware. He bought all of these artefacts off the Inuit people, and he sent them, along with the story that he'd heard, back to the British Admiralty. And it was not a happy story either, because Ray... He wrote how uh, the Inuit had seen uh, these white uh, these white men four years ago in 1850, so quite a long time ago, uh, dra- dragging a boat over the ice. Now, almost all of them were thin and sickly. They had very little way in the way of provisions that actually bought a seal off of the uh, you know the Inuits when when they met them and and seemed to have tried you know been trying to hunt deer and, and and that sort of thing there. But when the Inuit returned sometime later in the season to to where they'd found these men. They found the group dead, just they'd perished. Some of them had been buried. Most of them hadn't been, however. Um, uh, You know, these corpses were scattered amongst their meagre shelters, tents and an upturned boat trying to to keep keep them uh, alive in the face of the elements here. But the most dreadful part of the tale is still to come. Because after seeing the state of some of the corpses, and I mean, yeah, you probably know what's coming here, after examining the contents of their cooking pots, the Inuit told Dr. Ray 
that these poor bastards had evidently resorted to cannibalism as they scraped out their desperate existence in the face of overwhelming odds. Now, Ray, he wrote all this in a very uncompromising letter that he sent back to the Admiralty, and he he suffered for it, can I tell you this? He was heavily shunned by the Admiralty, and his reputation took a nosedive for revealing this, you know, for, for, for sharing the story that, that the Inuits had, had, had told him. The Admiralty basically refused to believe what he was saying. They refused to believe that, uh, you know, good honest men of, uh, of the Royal Navy would ever, would ever stoop to something like cannibalism. But, uh, I mean, that was the story that Ray told. And uh, the next year, in 1855, when more Hudson Bay Company men met with Inuits around the Back River, they were told the same story and presented with, uh, you know, once again, very similar evidence. Uh, some of these, uh, these trinkets and treasures and, and artifacts and relics that had been taken uh, from this site of the Back River. Now, the, the next lot of blokes, the, the next lot of uh, Hudson's Bay Company blokes, uh, James Anderson and James Stewart, they uh, went off to uh, to search and for for um, you know this this site and try to find any anything else that they could do to to uh, to prove that this story was indeed true and uh, they they found some some more artifacts from lost expeditions some bits of wood and uh, and some other stuff that that was actually that bore the name of the Erebus on it and again they contacted the Admiralty uh, and let them know that uh, what had taken place. And uh, you'll never guess what the Admiralty's response was. They did absolutely nothing. Even Lady Franklin's continued attempts to persuade them into mounting another search, now that they had, you know, a, a solid lead, was unsuccessful. Unsuccessful. Lady Franklin's doing her best. You know, we've got letters from Dr. Ray and these other Hudson's Bay Company people, and uh, and, and the Admiralty's just not interested. They're, they've closed the case, and they don't want to continue to investigate it. So, instead of this... Many other private expeditions were sent out, uh, and these expeditions, they continued to unravel the mystery of what had happened as other fragments of evidence turned up. Some of it related to the stories that had been, uh, you know, that had been told by the Inuits, others just uh, that, that were discovered uh, outside of that. An expedition was funded by Lady Franklin herself and was led by a fellow named Francis Leopold McClintock, and it set off in 1857, and in 1859, it made a, a pretty important discovery, a very, very significant discovery indeed here. On, on King William Island, on the northernmost point, more or less, of King William Island, McClintock's expedition found a huge can of frozen stones. Tall as a man, it was an enormous big pile of stones that were frozen. And this can had under it a piece of paper inscribed with two messages. The first was dated the 28th of May, 1847. So 10 years have passed by now. And uh, this message, it told of how the Erebus and the Terror had wintered first at Beachy Island, where those three, uh, three corpses, uh, three, sorry, three grave sites had been found, the three, uh, the three, uh, the, the, the camp that had first been found and the three graves. Um, and then the year after that had wintered uh, on the ice near King William Island and concluded by saying that all was well all well, emphatically underlined there. But the second message, the second message that was written on the same bit of paper, dated almost a year later on the 25th of April, 1848, written in the margins of the first, cramped in there, painted a much more dire picture. The message revealed, the second message revealed that Franklin had died just two weeks after the first message had been written, he had met his end, and that Crozier, the Irishman, had been put in charge of those that remained as 23 others had also died, as well as Franklin. So only 105 people remain here. The second message also told uh, of how the ships had been trapped in the ice for a year and a half, and so had finally been abandoned. 
So they had been the, the 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 ships had been trapped in the pack ice and they'd wintered there before finally deciding to abandon them once and for all and set off. And you can go online and you can see this note for yourself. I highly recommend you do. It is quite an experience. It's it's very spooky indeed. You can see the the cramped uh, handwriting, the message scrawled around the margins as they as they attempted to fit the uh, the message on onto this onto this bit of paper. But the note wasn't the only thing that this McClintock expedition uh, uncovered. As they continued to explore King William Island, now that they've got this rock-solid lead here, they found a skeleton on the southern coast that was wearing the uniform of a, of a ship's steward. And they also found a lifeboat with two skeletons and a lot of equipment, equipment inside it, equipment that would have been very heavy and cumbersome on a, on a long overland journey. There were books and oars and heavier weapons, slippers, soap, that sort of stuff that uh, it wasn't necessarily the best thing to be dragging along while you were, while you were making your way out on foot. So this stuff had obviously been, uh, had been left behind. And McClintock also met with some Inuit locals and heard their stories of the white men that they'd seen. So, uh, you know, the testimony of the Inuits here is actually giving, shedding a lot of light onto, uh, onto what had happened uh, in the years previous when the, when the Franklin expedition had made its way as far as King William Island. And uh, some, of the, some of the testimony of the, the Inuit actually included sightings of the, of the two ships near King William Island and people aboard them. So... With Franklin's death confirmed by the note, and now you know a much more precise area uh, where the expedition had last been seen. Right, the the uh, uh, the McClintock the McClintock expedition was was much more fruitful than any other that had been uh, that had been sent off beforehand. However, it did really point to the overwhelming probability that none of the others had survived this ordeal. McClintock here returned home to deliver the sorry news to Lady Franklin, the death, of, uh, the death of her husband. But still, even after this, the search expeditions weren't finished. Two more expeditions took place in the 1860s. We're now, you know, we're, I mean, by the end of the 1860s, we're now up to 25 years after Franklin set off. So between 15 and 25 years across the 1860s, uh, some expeditions were, were sent off. They found graves, they found the remains of campsites, and they found various artifacts from the ships as they as they explored King William Island, this area directly south of where the uh, the ships had had been trapped in the pack ice. And much of this was returned to Britain. Uh, some, uh, you know, all the artifacts and, and especially the remains. One particularly well-preserved corpse was brought back and examined in Britain once again to seek any further clues as to what had happened. Um, but uh, as for the ships themselves, there was no sign. There was no sign. The only, the last clue of where the ships were, of course, were, were, were these um, were the details that were written on the note as to the location of the ships trapped in the pack ice. But certainly, they weren't there anymore, and there was no sign of of what had happened to them. And uh, there was no conclusive. Uh, you know, it's not as if they found 105 bodies just laying out there uh, to 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 solve the final mystery of what had happened to the Franklin expedition. It was a, a grave here and a campsite there, and, and and little just little bits and pieces that were slowly but surely painting a more complete picture. As we move into the 1870s, another expedition uh, set off in 1878 uncovered another corpse, but failed to find any of the written records that they were hoping the crew that may have left behind somewhere to uh, to really illuminate what had happened here. And in 1878, after this this last expedition was sent off in search of Franklin and his crew, the uh, the the interest interest in this this whole case, the affair, the mystery, it waned. It waned to the point that people really seemed to have have given up. So. After, as I say, this expedition that, that, that turned up one final corpse, no further search parties were sent. No further expeditions were sent off to try to find Franklin. And uh, as it turned out, his lost, the Frank, the Franklin's lost expedition remained lost. 
for the next hundred years at least, because in 1981, right, we're back at it, baby, straight back into it here. In June 1981, an anthropology professor whose name is Owen Beatty headed up another expedition to unravel the mystery of the Franklin Expedition. It had laid dormant for a century, but Owen, he's the bloke, he's going to turn it on its head and he's going to find out what happened. He and a group of of researchers, they went back to King William Island, of course, this place where that massive big can was found, the the place that had been uh, searched by uh, the various expeditions after that. And he uncovered yet more relics, yet more artifacts, and yet more human remains. And after examining these remains, Beatty found that their bones had evidence of scurvy and also a concerningly high concentration of lead. But all of that paled in comparison. He paled into insignificance compared to what else he found on some of the bones, as we'll talk about in a minute here. But yes, the scurvy, the lead poisoning, very troubling because together they would weaken and enfeeble anyone. Uh, and so Beatty, he sought to find out the cause of these high lead levels uh, in these corpses. Obviously, the scurvy was, uh, you know, we know we know about that, you know, scurvy from a lack of vitamin C, episode 62, James Lynn, get across it. That's already well and truly understood. But what was it that caused this lead poisoning as well? With permission Beatty, uh, he he took further steps. He took new steps uh, to investigate this uh, this mystery even further. And as I say, after getting permission, he disinterred the three sailors from those graves on Beachy Island that I first mentioned. You remember them, the three the three people who were found at that the, the very first thing, the very very first sign that was found of the of Franklin's lost expedition. Beatty uh, exhumed these corpses. One of them, by the way, the corpse of John Torrington, has been almost perfectly preserved. You can go online and see the eerie pictures of the remains of this man who died over 170 years ago. It is it is very spooky indeed. But of course, being buried in you know what is more or less permafrost, uh, kept his kept his corpse very very well preserved. It, it's uh, it, it really is something else. But uh, after after digging up these corpses and after testing them, Beatty's research it painted a very grim picture because not only was it scurvy and lead poisoning these bodies were also suffering from a a zinc deficiency and there was evidence of pneumonia and perhaps even tuberculosis and these things all came together to just ruin the health of franklin's crew scurvy as i say from a lack of vitamin c uh zinc deficiency from a lack of fresh meat in their diet and uh, pneumonia because, I mean, well, because they're in the bloody Arctic, what do you expect? I mean, none of, none of these things are too difficult to explain, except for the lead poisoning. What was going on with the lead poisoning? Where did that come from? Now, while this hasn't been conclusively proven, the leading theory is that the lead poisoning found in the, in the high lead concentrations found in the bodies of these sailors, it came from, it was a combination of the distilled water system in the ship, right, in the ship's uh, the, the distilled water systems were a result of the refitted steam engines that powered the ships. And these this whole system, it produced water with pr- quite a high lead content. This, this lead-laden water um, was, uh, was, was one potential factor. And the other one I've already mentioned. Remember that canned food? Remember the canned food bit from the top of the show? Remember how I'd said it had been a rush job? How the how the contractor had found it very difficult to, uh, to get the 8,000 uh, cans of, of food made in time? Well... Turns out it was a bit of a bodge job because the soldering that had been done to seal the cans, the lead, the lead solder that had been used to seal these cans closed had been done extremely poorly 
and there were there had been lead that had that had dribbled into and and contaminate almost like the the wax of a candle on the inside of these tins and it contaminated the food that was then eaten by the sailors so you've got two things here the the, the these the canned food and the 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 water distillation system pumping huge amounts of lead into these sailors' bodies. Although recently some scientists have begun to doubt the part that lead poisoning may have actually played in the deaths of these men. It may not have been a a hugely significant factor, but certainly didn't help. Um, but it was uh, it was the zinc deficiency certainly that was a, that was a big problem because the zinc deficiency would have suppressed their immune system and allow uh, the pneumonia and the tuberculosis to uh, you know to come, to really come in and do their grim work in conjunction with the scurvy in conjunction with the, the lead poisoning. These blokes were just they were just not in a good way, not in a good way at all. Now, whatever it was, whichever you know medical malady was the was the main i mean they they all worked together right it was all they all they all they all they all made contributions in some way or another right this combination of scurvy perhaps lead poisoning zinc deficiency pneumonia maybe even tuberculosis here it ravaged the poor crew of the franklin expedition but that was not the most ghastly fate that some of them met with no, no. I mean, you can imagine the the ravages of these diseases would have been truly, truly terrible to have to, to have to live through. But there was something much worse. I mentioned uh, I mentioned just before that there was other evidence that emerged from modern forensic examination of the bones that were recovered uh, by by Owen Beatty and his team here. And this evidence it mounted as further uh, modern expeditions uncovered yet more remains from the area throughout the 1990s. Expert forensic scientists examined these bones, and this is about to get very dark, so steal yourselves. They found that some of these bones had marks on them that suggested that they had had the flesh cut from them. And the only reason that you'd be cutting human flesh from a bone, yeah, yeah, it looks like the story that Ray had heard from the Inuits, the story that the that the Admiralty had so uh, so quickly sought to uh, to discredit and and hush up and and, and cast as, as as spurious and uh, and defamatory, it looks like it may have been true after all, and it looks as though these poor poor men on the on Franklin's lost expedition may have resorted to cannibalism. And if you'll believe it, it gets worse than that. Because it wasn't just the, uh, the the flaying of the flesh from these bones. A few of these bones also had been broken and had signs of what's known as pot polishing. They had been broken and they had been boiled so as to get the last remaining bits of nutrition possible from the very marrow inside them. Really, it is just the the most horrific fate to befall these these poor men who were thousands of miles away from their homes and and driven to circumstances driven to 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 commit horrors that really just don't bear thinking about it is the, the, the they true truly they were desperate desperate men these poor bastards driven to such horrific lengths in order to just eke out another another day of survival it it is it is so very, very terrible. Anyway, on a uh, on a somewhat lighter note, uh, the most recent research that has been done into the Franklin expedition actually has uncovered some some pretty cool stuff. Uh, more recently, we have discovered the location 
of the two ships. In 2014, the the wreck of the Erebus was finally discovered after over 20 years of using magnetomers uh, to search for more relics of the expedition. The Erebus was found at the bottom of Wilmot and Crampton Bay, which is just south of King William Island. This is the area that had sort of been scoured by modern research teams, and uh, and, and as a result, the ship was it was found and it was in reasonable condition too when it was found. And just two years later, in 2016, the wreck of the Terror was also located in one of King William Island's bays, and this one was described as being in pristine condition, even better condition than the Erebus. Now, it's been since it's since since then it's been thoroughly explored, and you can go online, you can watch and see footage taken by Parks Canada as they investigate the wreckage. It's absolutely bloody fascinating. It, the ship, I mean, they weren't lying. The ship is in incredible, incredible condition after lying at the bottom of this freezing water for for so long. So, I highly recommend you uh, you jump onto YouTube and and if you search for um, Parks Canada uh, terror wreckage, you'll see some of some of the most incredible imagery that you that you'll ever find. It really is so so remarkable but what happened what actually happened to franklin's lost expedition now that we've gathered all of our clues now that we've talked about all the research and the expeditions that were sent off and 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 all of the evidence that we've accrued here what actually took place can we even pick up the story where we left it with the erebus and the terror sailing off from those whalers in baffin bay towards their doom We may never know with 100% certainty what happened on the Franklin Expedition, but we can make reasonable educated guesses as to how things panned out over 150 years later. So, after leaving Baffin Bay and after heading into Lancaster Sound, it's thought that the expedition turned north up the Wellington Channel to the 77th parallel. Uh, After arriving up here in late summer, it may have already been impossible to continue further, and so the expedition then turned around, it's thought, and sailed south along the east coast of Bathurst Island. Now, I'm realising that this is probably going to be much easier to imagine if you've got a map in front of you. That might help a little bit. Um, Anyway... As they headed south, this, this uh, meant that they circumnavigated Cornwallis Island as they did so. And with, with winter coming on, they then sailed back east to Beachy Island. And uh, as we know now, Beachy Island, that's where they wintered from 1845 into 1846. And it's there that the three sailors died and were buried, only to be exhumed a century and a half later by Owen Beatty. And after the winter passed uh, the 1840, uh, in 1846, they sailed south through Peel Sound but didn't make much progress at all, it would, it would seem, before the ships became trapped in pack ice just north of King William Island. And being trapped in pack ice in this way forced them once again to winter on the ice from, uh, in, from, in, into 1847, 1846 into 1847. But from there, they made next to no progress and things only got worse. Franklin met his end on the 11th of June in 1847, and by this stage, the total death toll is now 24, with 105 people remaining alive. However, it seems that the ships never came loose from the pack ice again, and another year passed, with another winter being spent on the ice into 1848. And finally now, according to the note that was found at that large can at uh, at the north of King William Island, not far from where the ships had become stuck, incidentally, the ships were finally abandoned on the 22nd of April, 1848. So the ships are abandoned, the second note is left at the can, and the crew now, they leave the ships behind and head onto King William Island. And from there, who knows? Honestly, who knows? Relics, remains, and artifacts were found spread out in the surrounding area as the crew attempted to pull together some kind of a plan to survive, presumably. 
but with their strength failing, with their health failing, who knows what it must have been like and who knows how they managed to make any progress whatsoever. The ships were found uh, some way south of where the note put them as having been abandoned. And, uh, and while the moving pack ice may have taken them there, it's also been suggested that the crews made another attempt to sail them south. And there are some stories of, of, from Inuit witnesses uh, to this, um, Inuit people seeing people on those ships, as I said, long after they were said to have been abandoned. So it is possible that the crew made, the crews made an attempt to, uh, to get the ships moving again. But uh, we just don't know for certain. Um, one thing we do know, of course, based on the Inuit, uh, the Inuit uh, testimony there, is that a group of 30 or so of them did make it further south, far enough south to, to, to run into contact with, uh, with some of the indigenous population. But of course, they didn't survive. They were found, you know, dead of starvation after having, after having succumbed to to the horrors of uh, of abandonment in the, in the middle of a of a wasteland of a wilderness like this. There, so it uh, it, it truly was a very grim fate for many of these men here. And uh, you know, I mean, this is the certainty that we have outside of all the speculation. One thing here is certain: it was a hard, and it was a grim fate for those who set sail on the Franklin exped- expedition there. The supplies ran short, and as the health of the crew deteriorated, the desperate situation that these poor men were put in, it only grew more dire. Until finally, many of them found themselves succumbing to that most terrible of last resorts. But since then, for a century and a half, we've attempted to piece together this mystery and and discover what took place as part of this ill-fated voyage, and... uh, There is an interesting side effect, an interesting consequence that came about as a result of Franklin's lost expedition. You'll remember that the the reason this expedition was sent off in the first place was to improve the the geographic knowledge and understanding of this entire region and and to find a way uh, from the Atlantic to the Pacific via the Northwest Passage here. You'll remember that that was the entire purpose of this exercise, was to basically make better maps, basically. And the interesting side effect of this expedition was that in the wake of it and in the wake of all of the other expeditions that were sent off to find Franklin and his crew, we ended up with very detailed and and quite specific knowledge of the geography of this entire area as the, you know, these countless expeditions were sent off to try to find Franklin and his crew. And they brought back with them the sea charts that they'd made of the entire area as they'd scoured it for any sign, any scrap of evidence, any relics, artifacts, remains, anything at all. And so while Franklin's lost expedition never completed itself its objective of furthering our knowledge, you know, the the cartography of, of the Northwest Passage, it certainly catalyzed the development of our understanding of the cartography of this entire area. And so... While Franklin's lost expedition may be a little less lost these days, and while we may never full have full understanding or know the true horror of the complete story of what happened on this expedition, its legacy has left us with a much more complete understanding of the geography of the Northwest Passage. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Franklin's Lost Expedition. Well, it, it, I mean, it kind of was the story of Franklin's Lost Expedition. Most of it was actually the story of what happened after Franklin's Lost Expedition, but it was still a bloody good story. So I do hope you enjoyed it. Bit of naval history. 
Uh, you, you do love to hear it, as I say. Anyway, that is that for Half House History this week. Usual housekeeping stuff, halfhousehistory.com or .net. You can choose one or the other. doesn't really matter. Contact form there if you want to uh, send in your topic suggestions, just like Melissa did. Thank you once again to Melissa. And uh, there are various ways to support the show. The easiest and simplest way to do it is just tell your mates about it, download the show, leave a review on iTunes. Simple, free, and uh, and, and very much appreciated. You can also buy merch. I've got a couple of T-shirts left um, and a few notebooks as well. Uh, or you can support me on Patreon. Uh, patreon.com slash half uh, you can go there and, uh, and become a patron of the show and you get access to all sorts of nonsense uh, uncut episodes early access uh, that sort of thing so thank you to the people who are supporting me uh, week in week out very much appreciate it and uh, that is that have I forgotten anything I'm pretty sure I've forgotten something I always forget something but whatever it doesn't matter uh, oh yes of course uh, the discord as well if you want to join the discord there's a half house history discussion discord you can go to bit.ly slash join Riley's discord and there's a half house history channel there that you can uh, you can either submit uh, topics in the topic suggestion channel or it'll give you alerts as to when the new episodes come out but I mean it's always Sunday so you know it's not going to change too much and um uh, finally, a, a discussion channel if you want to have a chat with other like-minded individuals who have such excellent taste in podcasts. That is that. Leaving you as ever with a question posed on Reddit here. Uh, it's a good one. Comes from Redditor Just Pure Ironical, who wants to know. We talked a lot about the uh, the Arctic Circle today, so it's a very very relevant question. I would have thought here. If in the Arctic Circle it is days for months at a time, why don't companies relocate during these months for vastly increased productivity? <laughs>